Thanks for listening to the Faith Assembly Podcast. If you're in the Orlando area, we hope you're able to join us for one of our services. Please check out faithassembly.org for more information or follow us on social media at faithORL. We hope this message will be an inspiration to help you find all that God has for your life. Enjoy the message. I'm going to begin from the first verse in the fourth chapter. And we first want to talk to you about the cause of conflict. Beginning in the first verse, it reads, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Verse 2, You lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain, you fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive, because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. I don't know if uh, you have an intrigue about World War II or World War I like I do, or if you like watching some of these uh, kind of engagements, whether they're historical, whether they're documentary, or they're reenactments with modern actors and modern uh, technology. But I enjoy watching those movies. And what I've noticed is that I enjoy watching uh, World War I and World War II more than I watch uh, some of the later wars like Vietnam War or the Korean War and some of the others. And I found that there's, I, as I meditated on this, I realized there's a reason why I like watching the first world wars more than the others. One of the reasons is, is we come out the victor. The other reason is, when you look at all of the film that's available for World War II and World War I, it's sanitized. You don't see the blood. You don't see the carnage. But if you look at some of the real raw footage that was captured at the time of Vietnam War, those things are bloody. And those things were televised. I wasn't there for it, but it was televised in prime time. There's quite a lot of footage. And if I were to take a show of hands, I bet that most of us in this room have probably seen a movie called Saving Private Ryan. And for me, that made World War II real, like no other documentary or movie I had seen before. Now my eyes were opened and I saw that it was very costly. I saw that there were sacrifices. I saw that there was carnage, that, that basically there is no winner in war. Everyone loses. And when Paul, I'm sorry, when James uses this word wars and fights, that word is intended to get our attention. It's intended to conjure up those battles, the battlegrounds, the the violence and the murder and the reenactment of those things in our head. It's a very loaded word, and that word is chosen carefully, specifically. And he's not talking about war between nations in this text. This letter was actually circulated to the churches. It was a letter written to the Christian community. He was not talking to the unbelievers. He was not talking to heads of state. 
He was talking to people like you and me, everyday Christians. And he uses the word wars and fights. And he's really talking about conflict in interpersonal relationships. Christian against Christian, brother against brother, husband against wife, child against parent, Christian against Christian. He says there are two types of conflict, wars and fights. And when you think about a war and you think about a fight, they really are different. Because a war is longer and it involves entrenched personalities or parties or opposing sides that their positions are well ingrained even to the point of maybe deep-seated resentment. And it's difficult to change when people are engaged in a war. And war produces a lasting resentment. Battles, on the other hand, they're not long. They're short, but they can be volatile. They can be unpredictable. They can be intense, and sometimes battles are subtle. Sometimes they're seething and under the ground and under beneath. They can be intense. Battles can be a battle of resistance, holding their position and defending it. And battles can be a battle of aggression. But whether it's aggression or defense, it's a battle. And he's talking about both types of conflict. He says that the cause for conflict among believers is lust. You lust and do not have. You desire and have desire for pleasure. You covet and cannot obtain. Sometimes we think it's hard to find the cause of the conflict. But James, he found the sore spot. He stuck his finger in it. You've all seen the little kids, you know, they're just barely big enough to walk and they know how to fight. And why do they fight? Because they see something they want. They see something they want, and they see something somebody else wants, and they want what they want, and they want to have it their way. I don't know if a two-year-old can have pride, but I guess he can. But what he really does is he lusts. Lust can take any form, such as the lust for sexuality, or money, or power, or materialism. It can take the mundane forms, such as a lust for food. We would call that gluttony. And that's a distinction between the need for food or mundane needs like shelter and clothing. But in all its forms, lust has the same goal, and that is to gratify our flesh, to fulfill our own selfish desires. Lust progresses in three stages. Number one, wrong desire. Wrong desire. It can be a desire for the wrong things or a desire for something with the wrong motive. 
It's a desire that is not guided or based on good sense or common sense. It begins there, that we want something, we want it badly, whether it's good for us or not, we want it anyway. The second stage of lust is envy. And envy is a feeling of discontentment, that we begin to want something so bad that we feel discontent. And that if we see someone else having it, it arouses a resentment that we might have for somebody else because they have what we want and therefore we resent it. And that envy, if we don't bring that envy into check, it can progress to a third stage, which is conflict. And conflict is open antagonism and discord. Man, sometimes a person can progress from one to three really fast. That's what toddlers do. They go from desire to envy to conflict in about a second and a half. But when we grow older and we begin to manage these things, they might be a couple of days or a few weeks or just a couple of hours. We might even progress quite quickly within a few minutes. He goes on to say here in verse 3, You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Often the reason that God does not supply you with the answer that you're asking, that he does not answer your prayer the way that you want, is because he has determined it is not good for you. It does not benefit you. In fact, sometimes we pray prayers that would destroy us or others, harm us or harm others. Thank God he doesn't answer all of our prayers. Thank God he has not answered all of my prayers. God is not obligated to our fervent prayers. He's not a reluctant God as though we have to pray harder, pray faster, pray in the spirit, pray with fervency, pray persistently, and hold prayer vigils until we beg him into what we want. God will never act contrary to his will. And he will not answer prayers contrary to his will. The purpose of prayer is not to persuade God. The purpose of prayer is for God to persuade you. The purpose of prayer is to persuade you that his will is good, his will is acceptable, his will is perfect, and therefore you should submit it and want it and pray for it so that it would be manifested here on earth as it is in heaven. cause for conflict. I'd like to talk with you about the main conflict, verses 4 and 5. James goes on to say, he says, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. Um, I, I have to confess, I, I like to watch boxing. Um, I like to watch UFC, 
to some degree. When it gets a little too brutal, I, I have to turn it off. Um, but some of those classics, you know, the ones many years ago, the, the Muhammad Ali fights, the Joe Frazier's, the, the Sonny Liston, the, 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 the classics. I like watching those reruns. And, and if you are somebody that likes to watch these things, you know when they talk about the main event, right? The main fight. There's usually three or four uh, fights before the main event. And you might have to stay up till 11.30 to catch the main one. But you're willing to kind of go through the early skirmishes and fights to get to the one that really matters, the one that you really paid for. And when it comes to conflict in interpersonal relationships, all that other stuff that happens before really boils down to one fight. If you think about geographic wars or geopolitical wars, there's this concept of proxy wars. We know, we study, we watch, we listen to the news. There are three world powers in our globe, the United States, Russia, and China. But all across the globe, we seem to be engaged in proxy wars, whether it's financial or military or social or political or cultural or technological. There are all of these things that are happening. And Paul identifies the main conflict. The main conflict is the conflict that we have within our own selves. It is the desire to please God versus the desire to please ourselves. That is the main conflict. And that conflict is the reason why we have conflict with other people. Because the worst parts of us manifest in the life we live and therefore, the people in our life experience the worst parts of us that lead to conflict. The conflict within the believer is real. And sometimes we can mistake all of the other things that are happening and all of the other fights. And what we really need to do is zero in on the fight within us that there is a Holy Spirit indwelling in the believer that yearns jealously to pursue God and to go after God and to please God and to surrender all and to sacrifice all and to lay it all down and to put it on the line for Jesus. And then there's this other part. And that's the part that we thought we crucified when we got baptized. But like Papa Mole, or the, the, the Papa Mole, the, you know, from the old video games, not video games, but the, the carnival games, that thing pops up and you have to hammer it back down. But the Holy Spirit is still working in our life, still producing righteousness even for those that make mistakes. I thank God for the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit grieves. 
He feels our emotions and he's emotional. He is a real person. And when we are struggling, the Holy Spirit is struggling with us. When we are tempted, we cannot say that he is tempted, but he is jealously yearning and pulling back our coattails. He sees us deviating this way and he's pulling us back. In this scripture, he goes on to say that those that are a friend of the world make themselves an enemy of God. In the world, sin is considered acceptable, pleasurable, non-consequential. The world is losing its awareness of sin. Even the word sin is a word that unless you're reading a Christian book or a Christian author, is a word you won't find. Look for it. Read the news. Read your books. Listen to your pod, podcasts. That word sin, that three-letter word has been stripped from the American vocabulary. If we can't even say what it is, we can't talk about it. If we can't talk about it, we can't address it. And if we don't address it, we fall into it. The reason that sin has become so habitual is because we don't talk about it. It's acceptable, pleasurable, non-consequential. We don't talk about it, and it becomes habitual. This is worldliness. This is the world in us. This is not worldliness out there. This is the world in us that Christ came to crucify. Worldliness can be summed up in one verse in the Bible, and it can be summed up in two words. 1 John 2.16 says this, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. One verse Two words. Lust is mentioned twice. Pride is mentioned once. If you open your Bible and you look at this particular passage, in many of your Bibles, there is a section heading that says, Pride promotes strife. And that is part of the message here. But James is actually emphasizing lust more than pride as the cause for conflict. You can overcome worldliness because Jesus overcame the world. Jesus overcame the world, and you can too. Jesus overcame the world Chapter 4 of the book of Luke tells us how he did it. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and he was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. And it says, one, that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. I thank God 
that the Holy Spirit lives in us. But I thank God that he wants us to be filled again and again and again. The Bible says that he was led by the Spirit. You and I are sons and daughters of the Most High, sons of the Spirit, and we ought to be and we are led by the Spirit. For there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus for those that are led by the Spirit and not according to the flesh. Jesus overcame the world because he was led by the Spirit. Jesus overcame the world because he was familiar with Scripture. Every time the enemy threw out a temptation, every time he put something in front of him that he wanted, I mean, who wouldn't want food? Who wouldn't want water? The only person that wouldn't want food and water is the person whom God told, don't drink water, don't eat that food. And that's precisely what God had told Jesus. Don't drink that water. Don't drink any food. For him, it was temptation because it represented real sin under those circumstances. And what did he do? He quoted back scripture time and again. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He overcame by the word of God. And in Ephesians 4.27, it says that he did not give the devil place. That's really practical. Don't give the devil a place in your life. When you recognize that lust of the flesh, when you recognize that lust of the eyes, when you identify that pride of life, right then, at that moment, is the best time to address it. Right at that moment, kill it with the power of the Holy Spirit. Kill it with the name of Jesus Christ. Kill it with reciting back scriptures. Kill it and be led by the Spirit. Don't go to sleep with it. Don't think about it longer. Kill it on the spot. I know that no one in here, I sure hope not, likes cockroaches. <laughs> but I think there is an initial reaction in which all of us have when we see cockroaches. To kill it. First, you might jump. First, you might kind of throw yourself back. But the second reaction is the one that matters. Because if you don't kill it fast, it's still gonna hang out in the house. It's still gonna find a, a way to squirm and find a corner and a crevice. It's gonna find darkness. You ever notice when you turn on a light, it runs for cover. When you recognize that lust, when you recognize that pride, you kill it. You might be shocked by it. You might be surprised by it. Maybe you weren't expecting it, but the light came in. God showed it to you, and you grab your shoe, and you kill it in Jesus' name. Yeah. 
I'd like to talk with you about the cure for conflict. Beginning in verses, uh, beginning in verse 6, James says, But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God and resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I think I could sum up spiritual warfare right there in one verse. But I, I don't want to digress. Let's talk about pride for a minute. Pride, we know what it is, but let me give you a definition. Having or showing a high or excessively high opinion of oneself or one's importance. Proverbs 28, 25, a proud heart stirs up strife. It may begin with lust. Pride sure has a way of amplifying it. Who is the proud person? That's what I'd like to know because the Bible talks a lot about how God resists the proud. We see that in many, many stories in the Bible all the way from the beginning, all the way to Revelation, that God resists and opposes the proud person. So who is the proud person? The proud person is the one who refuses to obey God. There are many forms of pride, but every expression of pride is rooted in self-will. Think about how important Jesus' prayer was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but let your will be done. So I'm told, Satanists say that the first commandment in Satanism is, do as you will. There are two striking, diametrically opposed commands. To do what you want is to act like Satan, and to do what God wants is to be Christ-like. And that is at war within us, within our own members within the weakness of our own peculiarities and preferences and personalities. The proud person, there are many of those in the Bible, but Balaam is one of them. This is a familiar story for some that have heard it, but Balaam and his donkey is one of those unforgettable stories. The king Balak asked this uh, international prophet Balaam to curse Israel. And God says, you cannot curse what God has blessed. But you go ahead and go visit Balak, but you must only speak what I tell you to speak. Well, Balak goes, I'm sorry, Balaam goes, but he goes with the intent of receiving treasures and honor. He goes with the intent of trying to persuade God to let him do the king's bidding. And as he's going, he gets up in the morning and he saddles his donkey and he starts on his way. And God knows what's in his heart. 
God knows he's not planning to actually obey him. And so he opposes him and hinders his path. There's an angel of the Lord that appears before the donkey, and the donkey's scared, and the donkey veers to the left and wanders off into the field. The man who's riding on the donkey, Balaam, he takes his staff and he hits his donkey and gets him back on the path. And as they go along further, the angel of the Lord manifests again before the donkey, and the donkey is not able to turn to the left and to the right. And so he strikes the donkey again. And the angel of the Lord is still standing there, and the donkey cannot move and won't move, and he lays down underneath Balaam saying, I'm not moving. And Balaam is so upset, he says, if I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you. And the angel of the Lord enables the donkey to speak. And he says to Balaam, why have you hit me these three times? Have I not always served you faithfully? Balaam says, you won't go where I want you to go. And then the Lord opens Balaam's eyes and he sees that there is the angel of the Lord and the angel of the Lord has drawn his sword. And when he sees that, he falls on his face and he says, I have sinned against you. Please forgive me, I'll turn back if you want me to. Balaam's sin was treating God's word lightly. Balaam is the poster child for pride. He is the poster child for stubbornness. He's the poster child for willfulness. The biblical pride, the pride as defined by the Bible, is when we know God's word and we choose to disobey. To whom much is given, much is expected. If we know God's word, we're accountable. We're still accountable if we don't. If you don't know that it's unsafe to cross the road, you're still going to get hit by a car. But if you know that it's unsafe, you don't do it. And you try to make sure nobody else does it. The cure for conflict is given to us in these two verses. To submit to God. The cure for conflict is to submit to God. To end the conflict between you and someone else, submit to God. Is there conflict in the home? Is there conflict in a relationship? Conflict at work? Conflict in the family, near and far? Where is the interpersonal conflict? Where would God have you submit to him and his word? What counsel have you been ignoring? What counsel have you turned aside from? What counsel have you treated lightly? This is the word that God would have you embrace to change that conflict and resolve that conflict. The second cure for conflict is humility. To humble yourself, to humble ourselves in the sight of God. Not false humility, you know, the kind that panders, that 
feigns humility that looks like but isn't really. True humility comes from sincerity of the heart. Not just to say things that sound sincere, not just, just to say things that other people want to hear, but to really mean them genuinely from your heart. Amen. The cure for conflict is to submit to God. The cure for conflict is humility. The humble person has a modest or low view of his own importance. The Bible says here and in other places, he will receive grace. He will receive the necessary grace to accomplish God's will in his life, in your life. So many benefits, so much good fruit that comes from humility. The humble person is the one that is regarded by God. The humble person is the one that God regards. The humble person is the one that God takes notice of. The humble person is the one that is heard by God. He is the one that is getting answers from God. He is the one that is hearing God's voice. He is the one that is standing in God's presence. She is the one that hears the whisper of the Holy Spirit. She is the one that hears his voice clearly. This is the humble person. The humble person enjoys the presence of God. What I'm telling you now, I'm actually exhorting you from multiple scriptures. Whether it's the Psalms or Isaiah or Job or Proverbs. There are too numerous scriptures to visit with you tonight to tell you what I'm telling you. The humble person receives grace for he is delivered by God. He is rescued by God. Even when they get their own problems because they have created their own problems, he still rescues us when we turn and submit ourselves to God. How gracious is our God that he would rescue us from our own self-inflicted issues. The humble person is lifted up by God. Depression, oppression, anxiety, stress. Can I tell you the secret to stress management? It's not a support group, although those can be helpful. The answer is to submit to God and humble yourself in the sight of God. Yes. You will be lifted up emotionally, spiritually, physically. We all have had the experience of finally kneeling and praying and praying, Lord, if it's your will. We have all prayed that. I sure hope that all of you have prayed that. But for those that have, you know what that looks like. You know what that feels like. That when you have finally chosen to pray the right prayer and ask God to take this from you and to help you with this, and you will do it his way, and you humble yourself, and you draw near to God, he draws near to you, and he lifts you up. The humble person 
will be exalted by God. This is one of those paradoxes, isn't it? Those that are that exalt themselves will be humbled, but those that humble themselves will be exalted. The Bible says that the humble person will be upheld in honor. They will be honored, rewarded, regarded. And the Bible says in Proverbs 22, 4, it says that humility leads to honor, riches, and life. I don't know about you, but I like life. I like living, and I like living a good life. I like living a happy life, a blessed life. If I get some riches and honor along the way, that's up to God, but I thank God for life. As we close, I want to pray for you that if there is conflict within yourself or among relationships, that God would remind you of his counsel and that you would take that counsel and not be as Balaam was. That you would not that we would not treat it lightly. That we would not be self-willed and just willfully do what we want to do and disregard what God said. And ultimately, the most prideful thing that any human being can do is to never have submitted their life to God. To never have chosen eternal life through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Indeed, the hearts of men and women are hard sometimes, so hard that it can only be changed by the miracle of God's word and counsel. For it is the word of God that converts the soul. It is the word of God that is perfect. It is the word of God that is eternal. It is the word of God that saves. And I want to encourage you, if you're in this room tonight, those of you in the atrium, those of you online, if it's time to submit your life to God, to put your trust in Jesus Christ for eternal life, to stop doing it your way and choosing it, choosing instead to do it God's way, I want to pray for you today, that today would be your day that today is your day, that today is the day of salvation, that today is a mile marker in your life that will never be the same, that you'll look back at this night and say, that's the day that I met Jesus Christ. That's the day I really surrendered my life to God. That's the day, even though I've been in church, even though I grew up in church, even though I've attended that church, That was the day. I hope you enjoyed listening to the Faith Assembly podcast. Thank you for joining us in pursuit of growing closer to Christ. Stay tuned for more messages released every week. God bless.